Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. This feels weird. We are back with the wise man's fear, and this is the first time we've said this intro in a while. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 1, A Continuation in Three Parts, where we will be looking at the prologue through Chapter 2 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of Workahol. We're back in Temerant after our sojourn through the Starless Sea as we kick off our coverage of The Wise Man's Fear. It's good to be back. So now, an explanation of the podcast, if you're new here. Each week we will be examining a section of the book, The Wise Man's Fear, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week, after which we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. And then, new segment alert, we will share a recommended thing of the week, which we will explain when we get there. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, as usual, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second of all, our discussions are naturally going to assume that either A, you're already familiar with the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you like to know the future. Okay, that's fine. I mean, if you want to know how you die, that's cool. And if you don't care about spoilers, we're here for it. Needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. Finally, as a word to our community, be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we all love exploring. Now that we're back, it's time for us to get back into the swing with 45 second recap time. It is your turn. Also, quick programming note, we have discovered that it is kind of stupid for us to have a competition around our interesting facts, so that's been nixed. However, we are keeping up with the competition and punishments related to our recap, and we have to make sure that any punishment that is earned is entertaining for you guys. So yes, if you'd like to send us some ideas for wonderful raspberry-flavored things, send them our way. Or cherry-flavored things. Ah, you're not going to need it. All right, so let's get started here. You got a timer up? Do I ever. I wish you would. That would take preparation. Why do you expect these things out of me? Alrighty. In three, two... One. Go. We return to the Waystone where all is quiet, though Bast's brain drones until he practically starts a riot. Bast gets to tasting liquor while searching for elderberry, which would go a lot quicker if his mind wouldn't tarry. Coat sends Bast out to gather some holly, for the previous night's route leaves him fearful of folly. Graham stops by with some barrels, bound in brass for winter apples. He asks about the scribe, for with mortality he grapples. When Chronicler awakes, he exchanges japes with Bast, who at the skin dancer quakes, for their levity won't last. Aaron drops by with plans to leave town. Though Coat can't change his mind, the boy's desire for adventure resounds. 37.95 seconds. Told you we wouldn't need any cherry suggestions. Yet. <laughs> Alright, so with that out of the way, let's go ahead and talk about our lens. The thing that struck both of us upon reading this chapter is that Quoth, under the guise of Coat, exhibits all the symptoms of workaholism. Including doing things because he thinks he ought to, not because they're needed. One of the things that struck me about this is that it seems to me that all this time he has mostly just been doing an impression of what he thinks an innkeeper ought to do witness his conversation about pumice and apples. He doesn't actually know what apple pumice gets used for after cider gets made. And he can't ask because he has to seem like he already knows because 
He's an innkeeper, and every innkeeper knows what to do with this. If everyone already knows the answer, he can't be seen to not know the answer. Which kind of rings true to his entire character, actually. And it's kind of tragic. I mean, we're looking at him here, and he's clearly bored out of his skull. Back a little bit to Quoth won't ask for help. There's so many of us that won't ask for help for fear that we're going to be judged or that we're going to appear stupid or any number of things that are undesirable or negative. I actually have a little more of a sympathetic eye to this because really in this town, Kvothe is acutely aware of his status as an outsider and it can be really daunting when you are an outsider to not know the things that are sort of common tribal knowledge. And every time you run into those situations, it gets harder and harder to appear to not know. Like, so when you start a new job, one of the first things you encounter is just the massive amounts of group jargon and acronyms and slang that gets thrown around. And it can be really hard the further you get from day one to ask what those things are. And especially if you don't have a handy reference sheet available or some kind of documentation, that makes it a lot easier to do that. Like if you have a handy little robot that will define all of the acronyms and jargon that you might run into or, you know, a Wikipedia page or an internal wiki to define all of that, that's really great. That can give you that ability to refer back to it. Because then you don't have to worry about losing face in front of people you're trying to impress. I would argue, as a person who generally had answers or knew how to find answers when I was at DigiPen about procedural things, administrative things, things like what classroom is where, even, find a person who knows the answer, who seems nice, and ask them for help. The person being asked for help feels awesome when they get to be the person who is your Wikipedia. This is true. Like I say, it's pretty easy to do that when you're brand spanking new. The further you get into it without having that excuse, though, it can feel very daunting. And I can sympathize with where Kvothe is coming from, especially if you're laden with imposter syndrome, which... I think maybe Kvothe has a little bit here. I think maybe Coat is an imposter. Well, yeah. He's Kvothe's impression of what an innkeeper would do. He's on the run right now. He is trying to do his best to blend in as an innkeeper. All of this means that he is an imposter. He can't appear to be an imposter. And anything that makes him feel like someone might think he's an imposter is only going to make it harder for him to ask for help. So while I think he should be able to ask this stuff, I can also understand the psychology and empathize with why he can't, or feels like he can't. This, though, has been endemic of his character for his entire portrayal. When he goes to the university, he does not ever ask the expert teachers for any help. Ever. He's the epitome of someone who thinks that going to driver's ed should give you all of the driver experience you need before you get your license and that you shouldn't need any help and that you shouldn't need any practice, that you should just learn from the driver's teacher and you should be perfect afterward. And that is stupid. Yeah, it's stupid, but it's understandable. I think it fits within a very particular human failing that we oftentimes all fall into. So I don't want to spend too much time ragging on Kvothe for all this for something that I can empathize with. I do understand where he's coming from. I just think he's wrong. And it's, I think, the tragedy of Kvothe's experience at this point. When I look at Kvothe, he's a tragic figure in my mind. I don't see him at this point as someone to emulate. He's someone that I kind of pity. What we're watching is someone who is grappling with their downfall. And 
I find tragic quoth far more empathetic and likable and interesting than triumphant quoth. More so especially than boastful quoth. Exactly. So quoth Humboldt is a fascinating character to me and someone I can empathize with. And here, yeah, it's a real flaw that he has, and we can see him paying the price for it. This is something I can empathize with. It's something I struggle with. I think it's something that a lot of us who are always the smartest kid in the classroom deal with more often than we'd like to admit. Also, programming note, if you can hear the dog barking, there is absolutely nothing we can do about this. Our new neighbors have a very yappy dog. And it's unpredictable as to when it will be outside. I empathize with them too, because I imagine if they could find a way to kindly stop the dog from barking, they would. I'm pretty sure that they put the dog outside so it would bark outside and not in their house. I'm not sure if it can be heard over the podcast, but just know that we have a new neighbor. You know, better podcasts than us have been interrupted by worse, so... I mean, we've constantly been interrupted by airplanes, and I'd rather have the puppy. Yeah, me too. Puppy's at least a friendly four-legged creature. Airplanes are just loud. So anyway, back to the book. We start off with a mirror to the prologue of The Name of the Wind, A Silence in Three Parts. It also mirrors the epilogue of The Name of the Wind. Dawn was coming. The Waystone Inn lay in silence. And it was a silence of three parts. There is talk of how it is a vast echoing quiet made by things that are lacking. It also talks about the silence of the dark chest that lay at the foot of a hard and narrow bed. A chest that has been theorized to death about. And also the silence that is embodied by Kvothe. The thing that strikes me here is he can't sleep, so he's just lying in bed because that's where he's supposed to be. Even just his basic daily functions are going on autopilot. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to be in bed at this hour, so I am in bed even though I can't sleep. And like I say, it's tragic. I think that's something that a lot of us do. We assume that if I'm supposed to be asleep, I should be in bed. But it probably would help more if you got up, did some things, let your restless mind wander or do something soothing to it. He has things that he could do. He could read. He could exercise. He's got a boatload of chores that he has to do just as part of running the inn. He has a boatload of chores that he feels he has to do because at this point, the place is spotless. Though... Honestly, he could just go around breathing fog onto every surface to see what obscene words Bast has left all over the inn. Actually, I made a note here, which was, Bast is the kid who used to type in 5318008 on his calculator, then flip it upside down so it looks like boobies. Or he's the one that would breathe on the window in the car and just write stuff and get his grimy hands all over the window and leave trails of oil or snot or anything. It's clear that Bast is bored by this existence. Mm -hmm. He is not a creature of habit. No, and he's upset that Kvothe is turning into that. And not even by choice, it seems. It doesn't seem like Kvothe is making a choice that makes him happier. If it looked like Kvothe was happier with a routine, that would be one thing, but this is mindless autopilot. And it's because he feels like he has to do this to survive. He's on the run. He's got a massive price on his head, and he has to appear to be not Kvothe. To feel like you can't even be authentically yourself. And you have to adopt something that Kvothe the hero would never do. That is... Not a happy position to be in. No two ways about it. He's had to sacrifice his agency for the sake of this routine. It's at the point where, at the end of our segment here, he'll talk about how he doesn't even feel like this is much of a life worth living, which is why he's starting to maybe take a few more risks. His routine may be safe, but it's not actually fulfilling. 
and it's not helping him live the life that he wants to live. I think that each one of us has a breaking point, and I think that Kvothe is reaching his. Yeah, routines aren't bad by any stretch of the imagination. It's finding a routine that helps you be you, be the version of you that you want to be. And Kvothe clearly isn't doing that, and it's driving Bast crazy. Yeah, Bast is going along wasting Kvothe's liquor. There's little rhymy, sing-songy verses that he is using to pick out random bottles. Maple, maple, catch and carry, ash and ember, elderberry. Now, the ash and ember part, it does bring to mind Master Ash, the end of the name of the wind. Cinder. Ash and ember. Then woolen woman, moon at night, willow window, candlelight. But that verse, moon at night, calling back potentially to dinner. Then barrel, barley, stone and stave, wind and water, and then he gets interrupted. And I want to know what the last phrase is, because it's like ending a chord progression without the last note. I mean, it's said that the cruelest thing that you can do to a Guitar Center employee is to go in and play just the first part of the opening riff to smoke on the water and not finish it. Oh, that's evil. But yeah, he's been driven to drink at like early in the morning. At like early in the morning. We don't get the sense that they follow German rules here where it's 9 a.m. somewhere. I am curious about the makeup of whatever cocktail he's managed to come up with. Because that would be fun to make. It sounds like he wound up with something like Midori and Fireball. Yeah, maybe. That doesn't sound like it would be fun to make. Anyway, we have made it all of five pages in. I think we need to maybe summarize better. (laughs) So when Quoth comes down to greet Bast... The first thing Quoth does is to thank Bast for his quick action the previous night with the skin dancer. Of course, Bast immediately thinks that Quoth has caught on to how Bast has threatened Chronicler, which means that Quoth would know that Bast is behind Chronicler's appearance here, that Quoth would know that Bast is trying to manipulate him, is trying to push him out of the innkeeper role is trying to further the plot. I also get the impression that because Bast is an inherently mischievous creature, fundamentally, anytime someone says, I want to talk to you about what you did last night, he's always at least a little bit guilty. (laughs) Even if he hasn't been working on some grand manipulation. Yeah, he gets nervous. And then he gets praised. And then he's like, oh. And I love how Bast's response here is, oh, that's just not true. You would have killed it like a chicken. I just got to it first. So we can see his project to build Quoth back up is ongoing. What is it with people in Quoth's life telling him that dangerous creatures and or feyan creatures and or very dangerous situations are like a chicken? I don't know. Because the Dracus is a gigantic chicken. Yeah, I mean, like the way a T-Rex is. As I stare at our little plushy Dracus that is on top of the guitar stool. Ah, it looks like it's going to jump down and attack you. So then Quoth asks about the White Rider's Hunt. Rode they horses white as snow, silver blade, and white horn bow. Wore they fresh and supple boughs, red and green upon their brows. Which means we are getting holly crowns. So Quoth sends Bast out on essentially a snipe hunt. No, I don't think so. I think they legitimately think that something will help ward off the evil that is the skin dancer. Also, they have a full discussion about whether or not the skin dancer has jumped from the original host to a different host. And there's elements of you would have seen it because it's a smoke creature when it's not in a body and there was no such thing that happened but 
it still kind of makes me wonder if that's what it was, where the heck is it now? Yeah, there's a little bit of John Carpenter's The Thing involved in all of this, where <laughs> Chronicler and Bast and Quoth are all kind of looking at each other. Why well, no, I'm not the skin dancer, but what if one of them is? <laughs> and Bast, of course, takes complete and full advantage of the fear inherent in, oh God, are you the skin dancer? And scares the living heck out of Chronicler. All that being said, we're getting things out of order. I'm trying desperately not to be granular about everything because now we are on page six. So while Bast is out gathering Holly, Coat or Quoth in the guise of Coat goes about his routine, which he says he'll have about an hour or two for. So in this two hours, he makes bread, not a small task. And then he is moving about the common room, laying a fire, brushing the ash from the massive hearth, pumping water, washing his hands, cutting fresh kindling, carrying in firewood, punching down the rising bread, moving it into the stove. And then suddenly he runs out of stuff to do. Which is almost like a lurch. Not having something to do when you are so used to having things to do leaves a wide open space in your brain for a head weasel. Fortunately, before things can go too far, there's a knock at the door. Because Bast forgot to unlock the door for the day. One of the things that I noticed was the door lock was composed of brass and not iron, which would normally be the case. I suspect this is a consideration for Bast. We'll see another instance of brass being used instead of iron going forward here. Because behind the door is Graham, who, mind you, was there last night when all of the shirt went down and he also couldn't sleep. So in terms of workahol, his option, instead of just lying there, was to make three barrels for Kvothe that are bound in brass. One of the things that I notice here is Graham is used to living in this poor rural community for his entire life. And I noticed that they're used to thinking about death where everything really is feast or famine. Someone can die for just about anything. They don't have doctors like they do at the university. They don't have all of the normal conveniences that we might associate even with urban living, such as running water or a ready supply of food that you can just get from the market. A bad harvest can be the end of it. So starvation, broken legs, consumption, disease, these are not unknown to this community, but they don't like to dwell on it. They don't like to talk about it. They notice the hole that is left by the person that used to be there. And they remember their friends fondly, but they don't have time for grieving. They have the harvest to go to. Everyone in the town is going to be picking out in the fields today. It's a community event because it needs to be. Everyone does their best to help everyone else out to keep an equilibrium. This town is of little note, but it is a beautiful community. They live close to the land and close to one another. This is also where I see Graham having a little bit of grace in him, where he recognizes that Quoth is not from around here. He's an outsider. And I see Graham here offering a bit of compassion for him. He knows that it's not easy for Quoth to blend in with the community, to become a part of it. Everyone is suspicious of outsiders. I mean, Aaron is from just a few miles up the road, and everybody just thinks of him as that Rannish boy. So one of the things that I notice here, though, is that Graham asks Quoth, as an outsider, do things look the same outside as they do inside. You have a wider view. It's very easy to get caught up into that day-to-day -day micro focus without actually having the wider context and recognizing that someone might have something valuable to add to that is good. During this exchange, Kvothe looks back at his childhood, at memories of his father, fondly with a little wistful smile. My father said that beer was better and the roads had fewer ruts. 
Graham is grappling with the way nostalgia oftentimes colors our view of the past. We look at the times when we were children oftentimes much more fondly because things seemed better then, because we were children and everything was simple when we were children. Like witness suddenly everyone having all sorts of nostalgia for the 1980s. Things seemed simpler for Generation Y who grew up in the 80s because they were kids and their parents took care of things and they didn't have to worry about things like the Cold War. They didn't have to worry about gas shortages because you're a kid. You're not the one who's worrying about that, though our parents were. We're not worrying about stock market crashes. Our parents worried about that. It's not that the 80s were better, or hell, even the 90s for that matter. A lot of the things that are bad now were bad then. We just didn't see those. Our view was not as wide. Exactly. And I thought that it was wise of Graham to check his perception against someone from the outside. So now to chapter two, Holly. We've talked a lot already about the events that happened. Talking about both asking chronicler of all people what the leftover pulp after apples are pressed is called. Because he is also asking an outsider for help like this in a mirror to Graham. We've talked a little about how Bast and Chronicler and Quoth have kind of had the thing experience. Though what we didn't say is that Bast is an asshole because he pretends to turn into a skin dancer and like rush at Chronicler. <laughs> causing Chronicler to scramble backwards and tip over a chair and hurt himself. And then it makes Quoth laugh and Bast just epitomize the rolling on the floor laughing my ass off. Though, honestly, <laughs> that's probably the worst thing that you could do at that situation. It did break the tension, though. And later on, when Quoth goes off to do more innkeepery stuff. Bast does something nice, I guess, to try to reconcile with Chronicler. He makes a holly crown for Chronicler. He mentions, you actually made my Reshi laugh. Thank you so, so much. This is a freely given gift for the fact that you gave me that gift. And then a reference to last night when Bast threatened his life. This is also Chronicler and Bast more aligning their interests. Chronicler, I think, is at this point now interested in the puzzle that is Kvoth and is trying to sort it out and figure out a way to responsibly <laughs> pick the lock, as it were. All I have in my head is the Skyrim lock system. A little bit, yeah. He'll do what he can, but he makes no promises. Which is all that any of us can do, according to Bast. Which, I mean, as far as, like, fey challenges and binds go, that's not too bad. Maybe. Though I don't know that I trust Bast that much. No. Naturally, you wouldn't. <laughs> Our next little section of the book reintroduces us to Aaron, who is coming to the inn in a way that is reminiscent of Quoth when he needed to travel to Traven. Aaron is going to Treya, and he needs Traveler's food. Quoth's been in this position quite a few times, actually, not just to Traben. <laughs> Before every big excursion that he's had, he's had to stop at an inn to get some traveling food. And I think Quoth probably sees a little of himself in Aaron. I think that also presages what's going to come next. Aaron is going to be escorting a caravan out because... The roads have been bad, there are a bunch of bandits out on the roads, and who knows what else. I mean, we've seen giant spider things, and also skin dancers, and other weird shirt. So, having an able-bodied young man with a big iron club probably seems like a good idea. Right now, Carter needs a new horse to replace Nelly. It's hard to get during a harvest, so he has to travel a ways out to get it. And Aaron is also thinking about enlisting in the army. As is Carter. If Carter can't get a new horse, if he can't replace 
a crucial part of what makes his livelihood, he's got to find a different solution. This is not a good solution by any means, but it is a testament to how PR works. I can also see if you're feeling desperate, that might seem like the way to go. Especially considering that instead of just silver, now the king's coin is gold. Gold will buy a house, and that is tempting. We can see here that Aaron is someone who feels a lot of responsibility for the people around him. That means a lot to him. However, the flip side is the mercenary that we met at the beginning of Name of the Wind was also a soldier, someone who took the coin. And then when there was nothing left to fight, he didn't have anything else to do but turn into a highwayman. Though he may have just been disillusioned, because clearly there are still things to fight. A lot of those things to fight are often manufactured. And the people to fight are oftentimes victims of the system, not necessarily the cause of the conflict. Aaron has a very simplistic geopolitical worldview here, saying, once we get the rebels to swear fealty to the penitent king, things will start to get better again. The levy taxes will stop, and the Bentleys won't lose their land, and the roads will be safe again. It's not that simple at all. This also leads me to believe that Kvothe took up residence inside the territory of his opposition. It's like the old hobbit saying, the closer you are to danger, the further you are from harm. <laughs> and here we go with Quoth breaking his glamour a little bit, breaking his rules, breaking from the thing that would keep him safe. I think because he sees himself in Aaron, he tells Aaron, I'm Quoth. And Aaron laughs in his face and doesn't believe him. And I don't know. It's understandable that you wouldn't think that the person standing in front of you is this mythical hero, especially when they are a person that, quite frankly, looks and acts like an innkeeper. Quoth has told the lie of Coat so many times that he can't be surprised when people believe that to be the truth of him. It's further tragedy, and this is a trap of his own making. Once again, we get a bit of Quoth's tale told in song or rhyme. There were rings unseen on his second hand. One was blood in a flowing band. One of air all whisper thin, and the ring of ice had a flaw within. Full faintly shone the ring of flame, and the final ring was without name. We know that the first hand references the Vintic rings that he discovers in the court of Mayor Alvaron. The second, I think, refers to the rings of mastery that people will get once they learn the name of a thing. So there's a lot of things that he's going to apparently learn the name of, including something without a name. As Aaron is leaving, we get a lovely bit of innuendo and, wow, Bast offers quite nicely to look in on Aaron's girlfriend. And his mom. And his mom, but the girlfriend. The girlfriend is the one that he's actually making a salacious comment toward. You know, maybe in Ranish they just have much more open sexual mores and are accepting of that sort of thing. Maybe. No judgment. Yeah. Honestly, that's kind of how I take it. They're just fine with it. It's no big deal. <laughs> if, if, if it's two consenting adults, who cares? There's the implication that this is not two consenting adults, though. There is the implication of Aaron is 16. How old is his girlfriend? Yeah, that's true. Ew. Probably no more than 17. Also, again, ew. Because who knows how old Bast is? He's 200 at least. That's a big difference. After Aaron leaves, we get back into Quoth needing to tell his story. There are definitely some word choices here by the author meant to recall the connections of characters to the moon, specifically Denna. There's a nice little bit of reminding us where we left off in Quoth's story. There's also some bits when Quoth is talking to Aaron 
I can tell you stories no one has ever heard before. Stories no one will ever hear again. Stories about Florian and how I learned to fight from the Adem, which is this book. The Truth About Princess Ariel. So many theories about Ari and Princess Ariel. I think we'll have to get the truth of that in the third book. Well, presumably there's going to be a fourth book, which would imply the existence of a third book. I was unaware about the fourth book. Pat wants to continue the story of Temerant. There have been times where he's spoken on his streaming Twitch. He says that he'd like to, which implies the existence of a third book. Now, again, talking about how there are all these expectations and all of these things that you put on yourself that quite literally can make you freeze up and not do anything, especially now that we've had the pandemic. So you should be able to do all of these productive things that you think you ought to have gotten done, which is bullshit because every one of us is under a depressive cloud of grief for the life that we knew a year ago. And we shouldn't be putting expectations on ourselves and we shouldn't be putting expectations on others. He doesn't owe anything to anybody, except if there's a contractual obligation to a publisher. In which case, that's between him and his publisher and has nothing to do with the readers. If we get a third book, we get a third book and I will be very happy. If we don't, it's not really a thing that we have control over and it's not really a thing that I'm going to be angry about. Anyway, going on. I do love Bass' little send-off for Aaron, though. Right, off you go. Have fun in the big city. Don't drink the water. <laughs> kind of reminds me of Billy Crystal and the Princess Bride. Have fun storming the castle. We'll never make it. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> so we leave you all with both saying all I wanted was to play my music, attend my classes, and find my answers. All I wanted was to stay at the university. His eyes became sharp and bright, green as a blade of grass, and he asks Chronicler, ready? And of course, we are not going to start talking about his story as Quoth right now, because that's for next week. Come back then. Or sorry. To be quite honest, I did not make as much progress on getting a buffer as I would have liked. So for the first couple of episodes, we're still going to stay on every other week as our schedule. But if you're catching up from after I've posted all of them, it's the next episode. Next time. Next time. Yes. Sorry, everyone. I'd love to have been as productive of a person as I aspire to be. But we had actual life stuff happen, and sometimes recording on a Sunday morning wasn't a thing we could do. So that brings us to our Aristotelian Phrenemos of the Week. So just to remind everyone, the idea of a Phrenemos is Aristotle's notion of the practically wise person. This is how Aristotle believes that we as humans can identify virtue in action. Because to his mind, virtue is a series of practices that we build over the course of a life. It's not just simply something you innately have. It's something you have to nurture, practice, and identify. So we've taken to identifying Phronimos individuals within the books and each segment that we read. So Phoenix, who did you pick this time? So I almost, almost, almost broke our rule. Almost. And I almost had a justification for it, too. I almost chose Quoth, claiming that because he's in the guise of Coat, he's not really Quoth. I just, I can't. I can't do it. Quoth is never our Phrenemos. So you actually, while describing everything, helped me come to the conclusion that I was right with my initial, initial pick, which is Graham. Graham, instead of channeling all of his grief into rage and fury and becoming inert, losing himself in the pain. Because let's face it, Shep was one of his oldest friends and someone that he had a deep connection to and love for. 
And the idea that he's gone is painful. It's something that hurts Graham to his core, but he sees no purpose in letting himself wallow in it. I don't think that that means he's ignoring it. I don't think that that means that he is denying it, but I think it means that he is accepting it quicker than maybe a lot of us would deem as healthy. But this place, Noir, rural communities where you need to come together to help one another through everything, have a harder reality than we as middle-class people necessarily have. And you just have to move on. The harvest will not wait. Now, he can't sleep, so he works as a coping mechanism, probably. He wants to drink early in the morning when he comes by to the inn, probably because he wants to dull his senses. He and nearly everyone in the town are going to go out and pick whatever the harvest is. So these are not necessarily things that I would recommend the day after you lose someone. But for him and for the rest of the town, these things are necessary. These are how they cope. They know how to handle themselves and to keep going. And it's that spirit of keeping with the going. Yeah, one of the things that I also noticed is that Graham is very perceptive. He recognizes that despite Quoth's glamour, he is not an old man. He's actually quite young. And it's easy to forget it, but here, Graham doesn't let himself forget it. He is not hostile to Quoth as an outsider, even as he recognizes him as such. Hostility would be an easy reaction. And even as Quoth may be partly responsible, or even entirely responsible for the current circumstances of the village, he doesn't hold Quoth to account for that, because it's not his place to. He recognizes Quoth has a different perspective on things, and that's okay, and valuable even. Graham is welcoming in a way that makes me see how Quoth could choose to settle in Noir. I think Graham is an excellent choice, and that's who I would have picked too if this were my turn, so good job. Thank you. All right, so with that, it's time for our next segment, which is the interesting fact of the week. As a reminder, we've kind of changed how we're doing this. We're not going to make each of us pick three and try to go through them and try to impress each other to the point where we don't have to punish one another because honestly, knowledge should be freely shared and we weren't punishing one another for interesting facts anyway. And I think that we'd rather just not be mean to one another. Yeah, we'll save that for the intro. Yeah, that one, if we wind up with a bit of hubris, that one is totally fair game. So let's go ahead and take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin. It's my turn this week to share the interesting fact. So let's talk a little bit about Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So JPL is famous for embracing unconventional thoughts and risk-taking, which goes all the way back to the organization's founding trio. These are the three known as the Rocket Boys. They were Frank Malina, who was a graduate student in aerodynamics at Caltech's Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory, he served as the theoretician and mathematician of the gang. Then you had mechanic and machinist Ed Foreman, who, according to historian M.G. Lord, could cobble together almost any device out of the junkyard that he scavenged. So he's a great scrounger and engineer. Finally, there was Jack Whiteside Parson, who was a self-taught theoretician and chemist who was also a whiz at mixing rocket fuels. So Parsons and Foreman were best friends in high school, and then they met Malina at Caltech at a lecture, and they basically just started screwing around with rockets for fun. Oh, <laughs> um, I mean, I guess if you know what you're doing, sure. So eventually Malina introduced Parsons and Foremans to Theodore von Karman, who is the benevolent director of the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory, or GALSIT. Von Karman was captivated by the quirky trio who called themselves The Group and their novel ideas on rocketry. Is particularly captivated by the delightful screwball Parsons, who loved to recite pagan poetry to the sky while stomping his feet. We'll get back to that later. 
So in April of 1939, they formalized their position with a proposal for a jet propulsion experimental station at the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory of the California Institute of Technology with a proposed annual budget of 80,000 bucks. They'd go on to contribute to engine development in World War II, rocketry as part of NASA's space race, and the development of missile systems built during the Cold War. So what ended up happening to the founding Rocket Boys? Malina was troubled by the increasing use of rockets for weapons systems, so he left the U.S. for France in 1947, where he joined the United Nations and founded the research journal Leonardo, because he was, at his heart, a peaceful sort. Foreman would eventually go to work for Lockheed, contributing to both the Poseidon and Polaris sea-launched missile programs that got used throughout the Cold War. And then there was Parsons, who, like we've hinted at earlier, had a bit of an odd twist to him. Like, he was so omnipresent that JPL was jokingly referred to as Jack Parsons' laboratory, or even Jack Parsons lives. So the thing to understand is that Parsons' extracurricular life was a little unusual. He was actually a fervent student of occultist Aleister Crowley, and would go on to become the legendary leader of the California branch of the sex magic sect, Ordo Templi Orientis. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he was an oddball. Did a lot of interesting stuff there. In 1952, he died at his Pasadena home lab in a mysterious explosion, a rocket boy to the very end. So that's one of those elements that people oftentimes forget. I mean, when we think of NASA rocket scientists, we usually think of a bunch of really square types. Nerd. Right, these guys were a lot different. I think that a lot of times we neglect to imagine people complexly. And I think the image of the NASA rocket scientist here, it makes it easier to draw the line between the three rocket boys and guys like Bobak Farasi with the Mohawk watching <laughs> the landers on Mars. So you can see that sort of rebellious punk spirit there, even as they're very much part of the establishment. I like it. Cool. And now it's time for our brand new segment, Thing of the Week. You get the inaugural installment, so uh, tell us about how this works. All right, so during our Starless interlude, we were recommending video games. And occasionally I get messages from people on Twitter or people through our Instagram who were talking about how they really liked us talking about video games, especially where I have a perspective that is from the back end a little bit and how even though maybe not everyone likes to play or feels like there is a barrier to entry to playing video games or that there are aspects of popular video games that they dislike and therefore they didn't explore other options. I thought that that was a really cool opportunity to talk about things like video games that are for people who don't like to shoot 57 orcs in the face. I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to shoot 57 orcs in the face. Orcs Must Die is a game that is quite funny and well worth your time if that's what you like to do. But for some people, they would rather be contemplative or they'd rather experience a narrative without a ton of combat and maybe not even a ton of challenge that we normally associate with video games but maybe they'd rather have things that are more like brain teasers. And so I talked to one of our listeners via Instagram and I gave them a couple of recommendations of games that fit that bill rather than punching pixels. There's nothing wrong with either type or all spectrum of type of video games. You like what you like. I tend to enjoy narrative experiences that have little to no combat I also like things that have a good user experience and where combat feels good, but I'm very picky, especially about that. But there is a game that I recommended that is something that was developed by a UX company. They are not a game company. They are a user experience design company for apps, and they have a game division. It's called Us2. And they're based in the UK, I believe. And they had employees that wanted to make a game. And the game that they made was Monument Valley, which is relaxing 
and sweet and has a loosely defined narrative. It's like an M.C. Escher drawing. It's a brain teaser. It plays with your perspective. It's definitely a puzzle game. There is an interesting storyline and the designers of Monument Valley describe their process as wanting to create a song that people play through rather than a narrative, rather than a book. And it's beautiful and flowing and poetic. It initially was available on iOS and is now on all mobile platforms. It's, oh my goodness, seven years old now. I think it still holds up. There are sequels to it, which means that there's just more of it that is incredibly lovely to play through. There is a start and an end, which is different than most mobile games that you come across where the idea is a perpetual game loop that never ends. But Monument Valley is definitely a start to finish story. It's relaxing and beautiful. The music is lovely. And the people who made it cared way more about creating a lovely journey than they did about making a valuable product that would earn them a whole bunch of money. The fact of the matter is that the UX firm gave them an unlimited time frame and an unlimited budget to make it. And the people who made it, the artists, the programmers, the designers, wanted to get this story, this lovely journey created for people. And so even given free reign, they didn't just keep going perpetually and not make something happen. They had a goal in mind and they got to it. And they shared it with all of us. And I love the fact that that recommendation actually got the person who follows us on Instagram to get the game and to play the game and like it so much that they mentioned us in their stories. And we were having a kind of tough day back on Sunday. Our podcat, Leela, who we are currently referring to as the Sniney Top Monster, as in Tiny Snot Monster, because she has a terrible little kitty cold and we didn't know what was wrong with her at that time we were really worried for her getting the little message that said I love your recommendation I don't normally play video games but this one is lovely it just oh it was so nice and it inspired this segment it inspired me to want to share things that maybe people wouldn't normally go for that I think or that you think are worthwhile experiences. And I'm just also going to say this. We're happy to accept recommendations as well. Yes. If you, our listeners, have any things that you would like us to try out and recommend, by all means, send them to us. You can do it on Twitter, at WaystonePod. You can also do it on our Instagram, also at WaystonePod. And... Let us know the game or book or movie or TV show or article or whatever. It really can be literally anything. If you think it would be fun, let us know. And if you want us to shout you out, we're happy to do so. And with that, I think it's time for our quotes. You have our quote from life. That is correct. And you have our quote from the book. I do. Let's start off with the books. Oh, okay. Let's do that. There are a lot (laughs) of seven word sentences. As per usual, I have a hard time picking. And the final ring was without name is seven words. Aaron, do you know who Quoth is? Is seven words. All the laughter faded from his expression. Here, it is a freely given gift. You are an instrument of my desire. The innkeeper's face grew a wistful smile. It's quite hard, making pies, I mean. Mary Berry would agree with that one. Soggy bottoms and all. (laughs) Again, sorry for the barking dog. But I think the one that I'm going to choose, it was a silence of three parts. Because it feels appropriate for the beginning of this book. 
It really does. It's the symmetry that's inherent in the King Killer Chronicle. We're going to get one of these days another entry, and we'll see more about that silence. I love it. Presumably we'll see more about that silence. I can't wait. I'm, well, I can't wait, but I'm excited to read it. And I agree with you on the limiting expectations in order to enjoy what is to come. Kind of like, so we've been watching WandaVision. We've also been watching things like the Nerdist breakdown of all of the episodes. And Dan Casey constantly predicting it was Mephisto! And while it would be an interesting thing to pan out, we take theory videos more as a entertainment rather than a set expectation because we find more joy in the creative ways that the filmmakers and showrunners are subverting those expectations. Yeah, it should be clear here that Fan theorizing is for entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as an actual prediction for what will happen in the books. And if your fan theory doesn't pan out, you should not be angry. End of soapbox. Anyway, so I had seven words from life. And so mine are, for I am friend to furry creatures. <laughs> this just describes a conversation that I had with a co-worker and friend of mine who was going out of town and needed me to cat sit for his two kitties. And I was, of course, delighted to do so for, as I said, I am friend to furry creatures. And then our friend got stuck in Texas during the worst snowstorm in... Ah. Yeah, it was a blizzard of the century. Fortunately, I was able to go out to his place and take care of his kitties. It was not easy because... At the same time, Portland itself was under the same sort of blizzard conditions. Not nearly as bad. Not nearly as bad, but the roads were gnarly. We were covered in slush and frozen rain. Because we don't need plows very often, so therefore we don't have them. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a bit of an adventure. I mean... We drive an able vehicle that handles snow quite well, so I wasn't too worried, and I was able to lean on my misspent youth hooning around North Spokane <laughs> in an old Ford Taurus. So, yeah, I can handle myself in the snow pretty fine, but I also know when just not to risk it. <laughs> so we felt terrible about the fact that we had to leave them alone for a couple of days. Thank goodness for app-controlled auto-feeders. Yeah. So I got to have a good two weeks where I could hang out with these cute little kitties who were not covered in snot. Yeah, unlike our current kitties. Well, only one of our kitties is currently covered in snot. She just covers everything else in the house in snot. It's really gross, guys. It's really, really gross. You should know. We absolutely love our cat. Anyway, it describes my ethos. Cats like me. Most furry creatures like me because I am their friend. Yes. And so with that, I want to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 3 through 4 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of comfortable routines. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support the show, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. We are considering adjusting our tiers a little bit so that more people, if they wish to, can get access to our Patreon-exclusive bonus pods. We have four, five of them already, and another one is coming up at the Spring Equinox, which is um, sometime around March 20th. I will find out and make sure it's available at that point. Anyway, um, we also have early access available for those that wish and an incentive to make me do art. 
And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. It's been Agatha all along. Who's been messing up everything? It's been Agatha all along.